You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. The vast Canadian shield. The frigid Arctic terrain of the Northwest Territories and Nunavut looms large in the imaginations of historic adventurers and illustrative explorers. It's a place that many have attempted to traverse, only to meet their ultimate fate at the hands of the region's unyielding harshness. And yet, for thousands of years, peoples have survived across the North but not without surviving its darkness. Not just the lack of sun for some parts of the year, but another kind of darkness altogether. Indeed, there have been countless legends that have emerged from the frozen wilds of Northern Canada, but none perhaps as terrifying as that is the tale we present today. The North is a place where massive beasts roam, where ancient spirits cling to the land, and where people disappear. The semi-nomadic village settlement of Anjakuni Lake was said to be well-known to local trappers, a friendly refuge from the harsh elements for those passing through. However, after what by all accounts was a successful fall season of fishing, This group of Inuit families were unaware of any dangers, of some kind of supernatural force that is yet to be explained. Join us on Into the Portal as we investigate the mystery of a legendary village of the dead and the inhabitants of Anjakuni Lake, who, in 1930, mysteriously vanished from their settlement leaving behind strange and disturbing evidence of a panicked exodus and a single burning fire. This is the mystery of the vanished village of Anjakuni Lake. Andrew McKay. Welcome back into the portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's up? Welcome back, everybody. It's really nice to be back on the mics. I feel like it's been forever, even though I think we only took a tiny bit of a break. It was well, a little you know. bit of an extended <laughs> gap here. I think it was just an extra week. I had to blow a little bit of dust off of the uh, off of the mics, oh. but I think that's just because we were cleaning in here earlier, but it made me think like, damn. <laughs> We're cleaning, it shouldn't be dusty. I know, right? Oh, wait, that doesn't make sense. We're just moving the dust around. We're moving the dust around. Well, welcome back, everyone. That's a mystery for another day, the dust in our house. Uh, first up, before we get right into it, we wanted to welcome some new Patreon supporters to the fold at Into the Portal. 
uh, because that always just makes oh, our, yeah. our month. So first up, Nilu Dog Thirty Seven. Yeah, yeah. What a name! But so stoked to have you. Thank you so much, man. Uh, he's ancient joined explorer. us as cool. ancient explorer. That's right. So yeah, thank you so so much. That's amazing. We also have uh, Danet, I believe, Very cool. is how you I pronounce like that. that who has joined us as a paranormal scholar. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. And then last but certainly not least, we have Rach, which I'm assuming is short for Rachel. But if not, you know, that was just my guess. <laughs> Rach, what's up? Welcome. Thank you so much. She or he has, or joined, us, has joined us as a, uh, a cryptid seeker mm-hmm. on Patreon. Very cool. So yeah, thank you guys so much. I know it's been taking a while for us to actually get around to this Nazi Bell episode that we keep promising you guys on well, there's Patreon. There's a lot of research. To there's do. a lot. There's there's a lot to get to for sure. We're probably about sixty percent of the way, like as far yeah. as covering ground. Yes. On what we need to cover ground on, and then so we need that's to, coming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is going to come, and it's going to be great. It is going to be great. <laughs> so we're still digging into that, and in the meantime, we might have some pretty awesome. I don't want to call it filler, but definitely, you know mm. what I mean? Like, not as uh, in-depth as the Nazi bell. We were talking about doing possibly <clears throat> a special Godzilla series mm-hmm. because we uh, got a really special Christmas gift that we would like to kind of go through with our Patreon supporters. So we might be reviewing some special Showa-era Godzilla films and then maybe also talking some unicorns. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Maybe some oh. spontaneous human combustion. Possibly mm, some spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> I still want to cover that. That was from year one of Into the Portal, and we still haven't done it. It's in the notes from, yeah. And it's... I think now it's done. Okay. Anyways. Perfect transition. Yeah, no kidding. What are we getting into today? Today, what we're discussing is definitely one of the most epic mysteries in Canadian lore. It's gone down in history as one of the most disturbing, if true, and it's something we've actually loosely covered in the past on the show, but not nearly as in-depth, and that is the mystery of Anjakuni Lake. Yes, that's a throwback to a collab we did with the Double Density Boys back in, I believe, the first year of the podcast as well. Yes. And that was a super fun episode covering all the mysteries of Canada's Great White North. Uh, yeah, it was mm-hmm. so much fun, so shout out to Double Density. And, yeah, Brian uh, Angelo. Brian Cheers, Angelo, yeah. Go check them out if you guys if you haven't listened to Double Density. It's an awesome show. So, Anjakuni Lake. Our story today takes us to a very, very remote area of northern Canada and a central area of the province of Nunavut, and specifically an area known as Kivalik, the Kivalik region of Nunavut, Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a part of an expansive remote uh, section of the Canadian Shield that we're dealing with today, which is, consists of a scattering of extremely remote lakes, streams, rivers, uh, most of which are frozen for most of the year because it is that far north. And our story specifically brings us to sort of a southeastern lake called Anjakuni. It's one of several lakes located along what is called the Kazan River. And this river is really famous, actually. It's uh, protected by the Canadian government. It's a heritage river, Mm. as it's called. I don't really know what that means. I wonder if there's like a sign up there if you go somewhere <laughs> yeah. the heritage river of canada <laughs> probably but it's it. it's well known for anglers and it's a great hunting area and it feeds right into anjakuni lake and multiple other lakes the lake's shores are notable for rocky outcroppings essentially it's a part of the precambrian shield and it's beautiful eh? it's gorgeous it's a gorgeous landscape and part of the landscape we've actually referenced in detail before just a little bit further south if you guys are familiar with our Franklin Expedition episodes, Mm -hmm. because it's very, very similar. So that's what we're dealing with today. 
And the story is of a lonely trapper who discovers something he definitely wasn't expecting. Early in November of 1930, so well into the harsh winter of the Arctic season, a man by the name of Joe LaBelle was said to have been traveling in this semi-remote area to the east of Hudson's Bay in the Kivalik region of Nunavut. At this particular time in 1930s, it was, I believe, still technically part of the Northwest Territories, mm-hmm. later becoming the province of Nunavut. He allegedly knew the area very well, and in particular, the place of Anjakuni Lake. He was an active fur trapper, hunter, and generally made his living in this area, setting trap lines in the area. One evening in November, he was in the proximity of Anjakuni, and he was a little bit low on supplies. So, tired, he decided to take a trail that he knew well to reach a village on the shores of Anjakuni Lake, where he was familiar with a semi-nomadic a group of Inuit that he had often interacted with and supposedly other trappers did as well in the area. Some sources even add in the atmospheric detail of him following a full moon shining over top of the lake as he approached. But as he got closer and closer, he could see the flickering lights of a distant campfire, but something distinctly was beginning to feel terribly wrong. LaBelle was within a few hundred meters when he started to be able to make out the structures of the camp, many of which looked to have been knocked down, they were left ramshackled and in terrible condition. But even worse, he saw that there was no people as he approached, or any other signs of life. Even with the structures that remained standing, he expected to hear sounds of conversation and laughter amongst the villagers, but he heard nothing. All that he heard was the sound of a slight wind fluttering over the dead silence of nobody there. LaBelle noticed that although he could see a very small fire in the distance, like I said, not a single other area had one at all, nor did any of these tents or structures have smoke from their makeshift chimneys. So nothing seemed to remain. Because at this point, LaBelle was becoming extremely concerned, both for his own safety and obviously for the well-being of the people that he apparently had met with before. He started jogging towards the only sign of life left in the camp, which was the small flicker of flame of this campfire. But as he approached this, all he saw was a burnt pot of some kind of stew that had been left for way too long over the coals. It had been completely abandoned. He had this feeling that the worst possible thing could have happened. He just had no idea what. LaBelle continued to walk through the village and survey things, And according to a later rendition of the story, he walked past what was, quote, wave-battered kayaks lying in the heart of this ghostly village. LaBelle looked behind these caribou flaps of the remaining tents and structures, but all he could see were the bizarre signs of a hasty exodus. These various different structures, some of them fishing storage huts, were left fully stocked with dry frozen fish. And likewise, the remaining standing living huts or tents were fully stocked with other foodstuffs, supplies, clothing, other items, including rifles and other survival supplies. If people did leave, they took almost nothing with them, according to his account. In one particular tent, LaBelle was said to have found a pot of another item of food that appeared to be stew, but this time it appeared to have grown moldy a little bit different than the still-burning fire. 
He also found a coat being stitched on a small bed that had been left half-mended as if someone had left mid-stitch. LaBelle knew that he couldn't linger around this place, but before leaving, he scanned the perimeter of the camp to try to find any trace of anyone left or any other evidence of this exodus. His search turned up nothing. He didn't find any footprints. There was no other discarded items left in haste. No evidence of a quick and panicked exodus beyond the borders of this small fishing village. And at this point, it's described that LaBelle, believing something distinctly supernatural had happened, decided to leave. He made his way, allegedly, he tracked through the elements to the closest telegraph office. This was somewhere either in northern Saskatchewan or Manitoba area. We're not exactly sure which office he made it to. But he risked life and limb, despite being low in supplies and leaving his trap lines, and sent a message to the closest RCMP detachment where he told this story of what happened to this small village. And so, a small unit of RCMP officers was sent out to Anjakuni Lake to investigate. We're not exactly sure how many Mounties went or exactly when they left, but on their way to Anjakuni Lake, these RCMP Mounties stopped for some rest at a small trapping hut or shanty, as it's referred to in some sources, that was shared by a trapper named Armand Laurent and his two sons. The officers explained to their hosts why they were trucking to Anjakuni Lake to deal with, quote, some kind of a problem. And they continued to inquire as to whether or not the Lorentz had seen anything unusual over the past few days. The trapper was forced to tell them their story. Lorentz claimed that himself and his sons had spotted a, quote, bizarre gleaming object soaring across the sky just a few days before this alleged bizarre incident or kind of problem had occurred that the RCMP were going to investigate. Laurent claimed that, quote, an enormous illuminated flying thing seemed to change shape before their very eyes, transforming from a cylinder shape into a bullet-like object. He continued to discuss things with the Mounties and told them that this unusual object was flying in the direction of Anjakuni Lake. Strange. The RCMP Mounties, we don't know exactly what they made of this story, but continuing on, they made their way to the site the following day. And according to the original source, which we will discuss later on, they found what LaBelle had described. They searched around the disheveled structures, finding the same traces of a sudden, strange mass exodus. The remaining fish, the discarded clothing, the rifles left behind. Various accounts verify that these officers conducting the search were alarmed in particular as they stumbled across a mass of open graves, allegedly on the outskirts of the village, where a small burial ground had been disturbed. Conversely, there are some little bit more basic reports or simple reports that claim that there was only a single grave found that had been desecrated or had at least been disturbed in some way, which led to some speculations that maybe there was some sort of an animal that had gotten into these graves somehow because the whole area had been abandoned. However, the marker stones being stacked next to them in neat piles sort of confirms that maybe this wasn't the work of animals because typically they don't stack stones. 
According to some sources, there's around seven or so dogs as well. Some say two or three that were either alive when LaBelle got there or carcasses that were discovered by the RCMP, about 300 to 500 feet away from the edge of the village, according to some sources. These dogs had all apparently died of some starvation because they had been left there by themselves, although it's strange because how they managed to starve when there was full huts of dried fish around them is kind of bizarre, Mm. unless they were left in some sort of a state that they couldn't act normally. I might just interject there and say that the storage huts... If they were properly sealed, then they would be obviously animal proof, you'd hope. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. I mean, a desperate dog getting through caribou skin or something? I mean, we're we're desperate. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're not wrong. If they were up high, though, the storage sheds, then. No, that's true. Yeah. That's true. The one, no, that's a great point. Uh, Obviously, we won't know because no detailed autopsy was ever, excuse me, conducted of these poor dogs. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to truly say what met uh, their strange fate, how they met their strange fate. But in the end, the story essentially goes that the RCMP, after two full weeks of investigation in the 1930s, in the far north, the Mounties, based on, quote, some berries that they found in some of the cooking pots that they analyzed to be from a certain date, they came out with this conclusion that the village had been abandoned for at least two months. So, take that as you will. Extremely bizarre. So what exactly happened to this village? What did LaBelle stumble stumble upon? Was it the mass exodus that he claimed was the supernatural feeling that that he had rightfully felt? (laughs) Basically, these are the speculations, and they run wild. Vanished into another dimension somehow. They simply disappeared. Taken by some sort of an ancient evil spirit of the land something that we've discussed in past episodes, abducted or taken in some way by extra or ultra-terrestrials, somehow tying into the witnessing of a strange craft, or perhaps a brutal scene of some sort of bizarre true crime event, or something else entirely different. So that's basically what we're getting into today. Mm, Thank you for breaking it down there. That was the breakdown. I hope that was okay. (laughs) No, that was a great um, preliminary, like, narrative that we can we can work from here and kind of zero into and all that, which we're about to do. But first, uh, just a quick promo break. Hey, happy new year, everyone. Well, it's 2022 and I know we all make goals and plans for the new year, a new fitness tune-up perhaps. Well, we all want to be the best versions of ourselves in 2022. And what often gets missed is that it all starts off with our mental health. You can get your car tuned up, your body tuned up at the doctor, but people forget the importance of mental health in all aspects of their lives. That's where BetterHelp.com is making it easier than ever to get on track with your mental health this year and connect you with affordable therapists online from the convenience of your phone, tablet, or laptop. It's really easy to get started and you can start communicating with a counselor within 24 hours of signing up. BetterHelp.com is safe and private and allows you to get help on your own terms and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist and receive thoughtful and timely responses in return. BetterHelp.com is not a crisis line. It offers secure, convenient ways to access affordable online therapists to take control of your mental health today. And we want to help you get started. 
Into the Portal listeners get 10% off your first month using discount code PORTAL, P-O-R-T-A-L, when you visit BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com. That's BetterHelp.com. And we're back. So let's get into some of the analysis to go along with this story. Mm. There's some major questions that we need to answer. One of the main ones, obviously, is this even plausible at all? Yeah. And... (laughs) Who are we dealing with? And I guess the first person we can kind of go to would be Joe LaBelle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who kind was his guy? a natural place to start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Relaying the story of uh, this horrific scene, which obviously, yeah, like if you came upon this, I, this would be your first instinct to go to the authorities because it's clearly a group of like what he's thinking is like either they're lost and delirious or like they're slaughtered or something. I mean, why would you leave without your stuff, right? It's like a very Dyatlov Pass-esque kind mm-hmm. of situation. Yeah. But the thing is, is like most of these articles we looked at, they refer to Joe LaBelle as not being really like provable as a real person or that he was even in this area around 1930, if you could find that name. But we've kind of tracked that down. There's been some subsequent articles and research done that show that he did live in the area at the time and that he was indeed a real person And that hunting and trapping in this area was happening all the time, because that's one thing I came across this, this, like people implying that nobody would be out this far. You know, it's, it's way too out in the middle of nowhere for a trapper to be out there by himself stumbling upon a fishing Mm. village. And when we say area, we do mean that quite loosely. Like, you know, he was within, within probably a hundred kilometer range of Anjakuni Lake at any given point, because as a hunter and a trapper, you're constantly on the move. You have your trap lines, you're, you know, so his presence, you know, you can question it to a certain degree, which the RCMP actually did in their own efforts, but he did exist. Apparently he did exist. And again, just for like reference for people picturing this in their heads or pulling up a map. I mean, obviously you can Google Anjakuni on your own, but it's East of Hudson's Bay, but it's right within that proximity, uh, within the, the classic historical Hudson's Bay trading route, uh, territory and all that stuff. Even more specifically though, I wanted to mention that the area is rich in flora and fauna. So it's described as being this extremely barren, you know, completely like uninhabitable, nothing going on type of place. When in actuality, especially in the 1930s compared to now in 2022, rich in caribou migrating through this area in particular, the lake itself, Anjakuni, contains uh, quite large uh, species of trout, northern pike, Arctic grayling and other fish. The river that feeds into Anjakuni, uh, the Kazan River that we mentioned off the top, the Canadian Heritage River, one of the best in the entire province for angling. And it obviously these areas can be fished in the winter, right? Ever heard of ice fishing anyone? Like I'm I'm reading a lot of these articles and they're basically like, no one would be here because it's frozen. Yeah. People have been living in frozen areas of the far north for, for tens of thousands of years and, and mm-hmm. surviving. So It's definitely an area that makes sense for trapping, hunting, fishing, all of these things. Another one of the key questions that came up or comes up for us with this story is where exactly was the village on the lake? Which side of the lake? Where was it exactly? And can we link this to a semi-nomadic group to some extent? And we'll discuss that in a sec. But as far as breaking down the story, I'm sure everyone listening has a few points that stuck out to them. One of the main ones being that Joe LaBelle came across 
a very ghostly, still-burning fire with Mm -hmm. a burnt meal over top of it. Yeah. And then right after that came across another meal that appeared to have been (coughs) abandoned for much, much longer. Mm -hmm. So that's a bizarre thing we need to reconcile here. There's also the description of, quote, wave-battered kayaks that appears in multiple renditions of this story. It makes it difficult to say whether or not that was LaBelle's words, because obviously Mm -hmm. wave-battered might be a tough thing in November in Anjakuni, to be fair. And that's one of the nitpicky things that has been mentioned about this story as well. But the territory is indeed harsh and super remote, so I'll give the debunkers that. And starvation and freezing is always a real possibility. So it makes sense that if there was any trapping lines out there, you would need to know where Anjakuni Village was because you'd have to know where your plan B, C, D was going <laughs> to get mm-hmm. some shelter or get some frozen fish was going to be. <laughs> so could this have truly happened at all? It's definitely, def- definitely possible, in my opinion, for, for LaBelle to have been there in this proximity. Roughly 350 kilometers as the crow flies to, to the Hudson's Bay and connected by all these river routes. You can hop in a canoe in the summer and make it from the far, far, like hundreds of kilometers north all the way down into Anjakuni Lake with a kayak if you really wanted to. Okay. Pretty crazy. Not to mention that even if maybe perhaps the way was frozen over, they would have used them as sledges too. Oh yeah. That's another thing as well. Absolutely. That could explain the presence in mid-November. But if the RCMP investigation is correct in their assessment of those berries that you mentioned and the idea that the the settlement or camp or whatever you want to call it was abandoned for about two months right? based off of that, then that makes sense. The canoes were there because that would have been like September, you know? No, that, that So that would have been is. just before the big freeze, the big set-in of winter. I imagine it may have been starting to have already by then, by then but like, yeah, like it could, the damage could have come from earlier or whatever. So again, it's like an, it's kind of a nitpicky thing to focus mm. on. So yeah, caribou, stuff to fish, lots going on. Could it have been a permanent settlement or a, or, you know, a seasonal nomadic settlement? People are like, no way, there's, no one's living up there. That's not a settlement on Anjakuni Lake. And so therefore the story can't be true. Well, Inuit at this time, especially, you know, in the 1930s before uh, more permanent settlements in Nunavut were a thing, this is exactly what they did. They were semi-nomadic still. They were moving around, hunting, using their trap lines, fishing the best lakes. Yeah. So it makes sense. I guess another thing that skeptics and debunkers uh, will point to is the idea that at this point of time in history, Inuit populations had declined so severely that it was highly improbable that such a settlement could exist in in the exaggerations. Because, like, we've got to get into this, too, is the idea that this story has evolved over time. We'll get into all that. The totally. idea that the number of people may have been exaggerated, gone from about 25-ish individuals to, I think you referenced, like, hundreds or thousands. Well, I'm pretty sure there's one ridiculous. 80s reference that says 2,000 missing, okay. missing people. Obviously, that's very... That's a misnomer. That's, in, of course. In, yeah, that's... Yeah. But... It is, it is a, t- a thing that there was declining populations in around that time. And according to the Canadian government records, uh, this was quite a while back, so about, I guess, 70 years before this, in the 1860s, yes. it was thought that around 100,000 to 125,000 uh, individual First Nations people remained in Can- northern Canada. And, yeah, there's 
about 2,000 of those in the Arctic region, Inuit. And so that kind of gives you, you know, kind of a little bit of a number, like, you know, an estimate there so you can get a better idea. But yeah, there obviously there was a dramatic population decline attributed to disease, starvation, and warfare, obviously, stemming from European invasion and settlements and all that kind of stuff. A lot of tension. So, you know, even though there weren't that many peoples of the north, there were definitely communities. And like Andrew said, they probably would have been on the move because there's not a lot of resources. Starvation is a real possibility. Freezing is a real possibility. So you got to go where the animals are, where the the food is, you know. You so, follow herds of animals and you go where seasonal fishing, fishing. it just makes makes sense. Exactly. So I guess some people might say like, well, what if, you know, like maybe, I guess just the state of the camp alone indicates that there's no way this was a planned, like, you know, leaving. Of course. Thing, yeah. Obviously. But yeah, so let's go into a breakdown of the RCMP investigation, because this was another little nugget where we were like, did they even investigate at all? No, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there is an official statement on the RCMP government website, and it's listed under a section titled Urban Legends, which again kind of (laughs) paints a picture of what they think about this case. And it basically reads as follows. The story about the disappearance in the 1930s of an Inuit village near Lake Anjakuni is not true. An American author by the name of Frank Edwards is purported to have started this story in his book, Stranger Than Science. It has become a popular piece of journalism repeatedly published and referred to in books and magazines. There's no evidence, however, to support such a story. A village with such a large population, they don't care to actually (laughs) enunciate how much, but... A village with such a large population would not have existed in such a remote area of the Northwest Territories, 62 degrees north and 100 degrees west, about 100 kilometers west of Eskimo Point. Furthermore, the mounted police who patrolled the area recorded no untoward events of any kind, and neither did local local trappers or missionaries. And that is the end of their quote from RCMP head office. Mm. So they, there's a lot missing from that statement, uh, yeah. which is very interesting. And we've managed to, along with, I, I won't say we dug it up, but we've, we'll present some of the findings of other researchers who have done some digging and they've actually uncovered things that don't match up with this current statement. Right. One of the key issues with this whole story and the modern day stance of the RCMP is that Let's just be straight here. RCMP is absolutely terrible at reporting anything to do with Indigenous peoples. Like, like obviously, the tides are turning now. We've had big developments, even in the last year, hey, in Canada. But it's... It's a travesty. This country has a horrible history of abusing Indigenous peoples, tossing their issues aside, sweeping them under the rug. Yeah. And uh, so this may have just gone, quote, unreported or even buried intentionally. Like there's multiple like, things. 100%. If absolutely. you want to get sinister. <laughs> no, and it's, 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 it's really just not like a leap at all to suggest that. And, mm-hmm. you know, like just to break down a, a few of the little nuggets in this statement, you know, official statement on their urban legends page of the RCMP, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. There's a bunch of other things on there too. I think there's a couple of UFO uh, accounts too. But the statement here where it's like mounted police who patrolled the area recorded no untoward events of any kind. So in this official mm-hmm. statement, they're saying, well, yeah, we went to look and there was nothing there. 
When yeah. in others, they're basically, which we'll get into, they're basically saying, this never happened at all. No one even went to look. Why would anyone go to look? This is a completely made up story. They're, they're basically saying it's a figment of Out Frank of one, Edwards' yeah. imagination. So if it was a, fig, a figment of Frank Edwards' imagination of a story in the 1930s, why would they send people to go check out untoward events, you know, well, hang near, on nearly a 30 years later? Hang on a second. Because Stranger Than Science was actually published in 1959. Yeah. So it... it they're saying that that was the original source. Yeah. When actually a lot of other researchers who've done some digging think that Frank Edwards got the story from a Fate magazine article. Right. And that obviously they're discounting in this statement, they're discounting the original source, which was from 1930. So right. that's either saying, but like, I, they're I'm, just not checking into their records yeah, or... A hundred percent. No, that's true, too. But what I was trying to... I guess the point I was trying to make there is that on one side of their mouth, they're saying doesn't exist at all. Nobody went there. And the other side of their mouth, in some different versions, they're saying, yeah, we went there and didn't see anything or only... Like, there's different versions of that side. Like, an investigation that did happen, but didn't mm-hmm. turn up anything. Yeah. It can't be both. Well, it's kind of, like, iffy. Because, like, the, the wording here... So, the mounted police who patrolled the area... So, that's like saying they had a regular patrol is kind of what I'm picturing in my mind. Something that might have come around every week or every month or who knows how often because it's pretty far out of the way. Right. And so, maybe they're saying that in those patrols, they never had any reports or any, like, cases filed where any of this ever came up. Right. But let's get into this other evidence here because there is evidence dug up by this one author and researcher by the name of John Robert Colombo. He published his book, Mysterious Canada, in 1988, and he actually claims that he saw an original report from 1931, January of 1931, uh, that was an RCMP investigation. So it was led by a Sergeant J. Nelson, allegedly. Mm. So in his book, Columbo claims to have seen a copy of this original report, even though the RCMP themselves deny or lack to include that in their official statement today. So they're just, you know, Sweeping under the rug, maybe. But basically, the summation is this. So in January of 1931, so this is placing it months later. So we're going, we're jumping from November to, that November was when the original articles were published, and now we're January. Right. So in January of 1931, Sergeant J. Nelson was stationed in the pass, and that's in Manitoba. Right. And he filed an internal report that was released to the public. In the report, Nelson wrote he could find, quote, no foundation for this story, end quote. And this conclusion was based off of his investigative interviews that couldn't find any corroboration of LaBelle's story. He also went on to include in this report that Joe LaBelle, our informant for the story, had actually just taken out his first trapping license that season. And so Nelson was questioning whether or not LaBelle was even in the area, as previously stated in the Kelleher article, because he was so relatively new to the north and he worked, quote, far away from Hanjaguni Lake. But he doesn't say how far away. So it's like, again, right, we're not getting exact distances. Yeah, right. (laughs) And so because of that reason, Nelson concluded that it was unlikely that Joe LaBelle was in the area and that he saw what he saw. Okay. Now, and of course, we'll break this down a little later too, but so this is interesting because, Mm -hmm. of course, Sergeant Nelson when we looked him up and other researchers have as well, was indeed a real person and existed. Whether or not 
exactly these details, you know, came together as they did. We'll, we'll get into as well. But I think this is a good time to mention Kelleher because you just mentioned that name, but we haven't actually got to the, mm. to Kelleher yet. Yes. Emmett yes. E. Classic so, newspaperman name. Emmett E. Kelleher, special correspondent. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. So he was the one that actually wrote the original article from the 1930s. And the RCMP do not acknowledge the his article. They only acknowledge the book, The Stranger Than Science. So that's the first That's the first uh, strike against the RCMP for everyone keeping tallies here because... The second strike, really. Or they, second strike. They don't even acknowledge uh, Nelson and his existence so Nelson and his exists, investigation. <laughs> 1930s article, they say, nay, 1959. But wait. Okay. Yeah, on. exactly, right? Okay. But uh, allegedly on November 28th of 1930... Emmett E. Kelleher published a report of the events, and this was actually originally submitted by Kelleher to what's known as the NEA, the Newspaper Enterprise Association, which was the prevailing syndicate of its time. And that just means that they were a major hub for distributing news, so they would have anything from political cartoons to editorials to uh, whatever. Totally. And that would have been picked up all around the world, just like Associated Press today. So basically, Kelleher submits this to the NEA. It gets picked up by a Canadian newspaper, La Paz, Manitoba, and is run on November 28th. It's also run by another newspaper known as the Danville Bee, and that is located quite a bit further south in Strangely Virginia. Strangely <laughs> quite a bit further south, yes. Yeah, and it's kind of, there's a little bit of jambalaya going on here, a little bit of confusion, where it's like most sources will say that the La Paz, Manitoba was first to the punch, but other people say it was the Bee, but I'm kind of just like, they both would have accessed it from distribution by the NEA, so it doesn't really matter that much in my opinion. It's just whether or not it gets picked up by multiple sources and becomes more of a uh, like a trend or like you know a viral story right. in those days. So, regardless of who got the scoop first, it's uh, in the opinion of most researchers that the account that actually caught public interest the most was printed a day later, November 29th, 1930, and this was in the Halifax Herald. And so it was called, <laughs> sensationalistic, to the umpteenth degree, I would say, Tribe Lost in Barrens of North, Village of Dead Found by Wandering Trapper, Joe Lavelle. <laughs> oh, yes. So if you saw that headline, huh, yeah, that would definitely sell some papers, I'd imagine. So It would, yeah. There's a lot going on papers. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we actually did manage to find the um, the Danville Bee newspaper story. That's actually online here at newspaperarchive.com. Yes, it is. And they actually have it listed as published on November 27th. So if you're looking at it, basically it would be the Danville Bee first. Day later, you get La Paz's edition. And then another day later, you get the Halifax Herald edition. So, so like... That's just how news works, baby. And so <laughs> it's, it's, like, just patently absurd that the RCMP would have on their official website a statement saying none of this was mentioned ever before yeah, right? until 1959. Right. When it's like, like the even heck, a, man. even a cursory glance There's, turns up some of the stuff there because is people evidence. have put in the research now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite, it's quite absurd. Obviously. We yeah, submit we'll, this episode to the RCMP, reopen this investigation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyways, they would never do that. <laughs> no. Let's continue. <laughs> There's more questions though, because even regarding Kelleher himself, like, who was this guy? Did he have a connection to LaBelle? Like, where did all this kind of crop up from? True. Is he a reliable reporter? Can we take him at his word? These are genuine questions we have to ask. 
And it's interesting because the guy that I mentioned ahead, or sorry, just a second ago, um, John Robert Colombo, who wrote that Mysterious Canada back in 1988. Yeah. He is a prolific writer. He actually wrote another book in 2000 called Ghost Stories of Canada. And in that book, he discusses the case again. And uh, Colombo has uh, some issues with Kelleher and his claims. And he states in his book, this is a quote, from my own knowledge of the correspondent, Kelleher, I consider the whole story fiction. Mr. Kelleher is in the habit of writing colorful stories of the North, and very little credence can be given to his articles. At present, he is visiting in the East, and that he should return to the past, I will interview him regarding the above matter. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when he actually wrote that, because if at the time of publishing, it was 2000, so that'd be quite a ways later. But I think John Robert Colombo was quite active in the 80s. So, Yeah, that would maybe line up with uh, mm-hmm. interviewing an older, an older Kelleher. Uh, if mm-hmm. he was a, a younger journalist when he f- when this was first published, exactly the whole uh, submission to essentially like the the older version of the Associated Press is interesting because you know Kelleher is or a common the NEA or the NEA rather like Kelleher is a common name Labelle is a common French Canadian name like lots of these names Laurent are, too right They're, yeah they are yeah that's a name that's going to mm-hmm. come up in a sec you already mentioned him oh yeah, yeah yeah that's right it's tough to. It's really tough to, like, pin down exactly, like, where, like, because that's just it. It's like, I couldn't find, like, a slew of other articles from Kelleher. You know what I mean? Like, to be mm-hmm. like, oh, to, to, to corroborate like this. Like, like that... he has a habit of writing colorful stories of the North. Right? I didn't find any other colorful stories of the North. He wasn't, like, that other very dubious character, and I can't remember his name. Remember we covered him in another episode? And yeah, the he... guy who wrote potentially the Kincaid's Cave story. Yeah. Uh, who was super, I can't remember his name off the top Prolific. of my head. Prolific. Yeah, and it was wrote... all yellow journalism. Yeah. And he people, admitted to it. And people were cool with it because mm. he because he admitted to it. He was like, I'm a... I'm a like a mini uh, novelist or whatever. Like you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean. Like my novels get read by more by people in one day than <laughs> than every yeah. But that's sort of the same idea and definitely the same era. You know, nineteen mm-hmm. thirties. It's, I mean, what was the height of yellow train? Twenties and thirties, I, I guess. Even earlier, that, earlier, yeah, than yeah, yeah. Tens, twenties, yeah, totally. Hmm. This is the the depression era too, so. So, so okay. it's kind of interesting. Like, my questions, I was like, naturally, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, was maybe the NEA slash the Danville B and all these different publicators, publicators, is that the word? <laughs> Publishers. <Publications>? Publishers, <laughs> exactly. Were they all duped by Kelleher's wild imaginings? Did they pick it up because they just loved the sensationalist uh, name of the story? Was Kelleher himself duped by his informant, LaBelle, right? Because LaBelle is said to have existed. Whether or not he actually saw what he saw remains unverified because we just will never have that answer. <laughs> well, it's this weird connection with like this alleged, uh, you know, investigation from Sergeant Nelson that turns up that, yeah, LaBelle indeed is a real person. And yeah, he was mm-hmm. trapping in this area, but it was his first time ever doing it unless he was doing it without a license. Why would you all of a sudden just get a license mm. that year unless you thought someone was on to you? But then yeah. there's this weird potential connection unless you were just uh, associating it with this uh, shared newspaper archive of, like, stories with Virginia. So it's potentially, like, this guy who's mysteriously in the North for the first time, potentially, ever, and then the story getting released on the Danville B. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe he's Maybe from Virginia. Was Maybe he from American. Virginia? Yeah. Hmm. We can come back to that. We can come back to that. I still just think that the Virginia, like the Danville Bee picking it up was just one of those random ones, or maybe it was like a really slow news day and 
you know, even the other day when we were joking, we were watching Global News Morning, we we're like, why are we watching news about a bridge breaking down in Wisconsin? Because that right. has nothing to do with our lives in BC. No. Slow, slow news day. So maybe it was that for them <laughs> right. there. I don't know. Yeah. But I just think it was because of the NEA's existence that the Danville Bee ever would have been notified as to the story's existence. That's my understanding of it, but if anyone has a more nuanced understanding, I definitely would love to hear it. For sure, for sure. <laughs> like you're saying, though, could could that story have sounded more convincing to a Virginian publication? And in that sense, that's why they picked it up? Well, I don't know. The, the other thing I guess I could just mention now instead of saving it for the end, like that's a possibility, I guess, but just the idea of like, we've already said off the top here, like the RCMP, especially in the 1930s, would not have cared at all about the issues of an Inuit village. That nobody would be rushing to help an Inuit village at that at that time. Like no. the relationships would have been bad. They're they're bad right now in 2022. Mm. So there's touch just, and go. I don't really bad. see how the the response would have necessarily been that dramatic unless it was mm, yeah. described in the way it was by LaBelle. So it's either mm-hmm. like he, maybe he's sensationalizing it to try to get attention because it's like, well, no one's going to listen unless this is like really dramatic because it needs to be dramatic. There needs to be paranormal involved for anyone to even pay attention if he mm. actually found something he cared about. Something completely or, so bizarre, unexplainable that it has to be paranormal. Yeah. Know? Well, that's kind of interesting because that's a good lead up into this next sort of angle here and that's the idea of this story evolving to become more exaggerated over time and that the initial report may have been more plausible but as a lot of things you know a lot of the way things go like you know a lot of the times other things get added on tacked on it's obviously to create a better story for a lot of people if they're right and we see it as we go through these sources right it's like you see one and it's like oh clearly you know kind of the bare bones you go to the next one it's like 2005 published or something right it's like okay this has got a bunch of extra information about the dogs in this one Mm -hmm. or what have you amber you have a few Mm -hmm. of the kind of the more specific yeah totally because you're right the number of dogs like there's so many different details that have changed and evolved and it's kind of like an echo chamber to a certain degree where certain things get repeated like to the letter and then other things just kind of get added in or reimagined I guess but yeah these new elements or whatever that have been woven into this mystery include yeah the number of people who vanished number of houses huts the type of houses and huts the type of settlement it was there's also a UFO angle that's been added in, um, evil spirits of the North. So some more Inuit mythology has, that's become a factor in yeah. retellings. But um, yeah, so it's interesting because I had a source here, Garth Haslam, and he actually writes for AnomalyInfo.com. He wrote a pretty eloquent article about it. I actually appreciated his perspective. But he claims to have tracked down the uh, November 26th, 2000, sorry, 1930 <laughs> transcript of a report that was sent into the Newspaper Enterprise Association, that the same one we've been referencing from Kelleher. And the original story allegedly includes mention of six tents and an estimation of about 25 inhabitants vanished. It includes two emaciated dogs still half alive as LaBelle entered the camp. And okay. this is a quote from that report that I'll just read here. So, quote, it started when Joe LaBelle arrived by canoe at the village. 
Hmm. By canoe. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. He beached the canoe about 100 yards from the village and approached it, shouting out greetings. There were only six tents in the village, and LaBelle began to investigate them. And then this is a quote directly from LaBelle. I'll admit that when I went into the first tent, I was a little jumpy. Just looking around, I could see the place hadn't known human life for months, and I expected to find corpses inside. But there was nothing there but the personal belongings of a family. A couple of deer parkas, skin coats, were in one corner. Fish and deer bones were scattered about. There were only a few pairs of boots and an iron pot, greasy and black. Under one of the parkas, I found a rifle. It had been there so long that it was rusty. And then this article, supposedly the alleged original, goes on to mention that, quote, LaBelle spent a few more hours in the village. He caught some fish in the lake and gave these to the dogs, but left well before he might have to spend the night there. He could see no obvious reason why the Inuit would have left their lives behind. Over the rest of the season, LaBelle asked about the residents of the village at each Inuit habitation he stopped at. No one knew what had happened, but, in general, they all blamed the evil spirit Tornrark for the event. Hmm. So we have more on that in a second, the evil spirit element there. Yeah, that's But dark. that, again, right, we've, there's so many small details, like... Well, and he, yeah, because that obviously changes things. It really does. Because... The idea that he came by canoe... Well, and actually, I tried looking that up because, like, the Kazan River is, you know, it's it's a river. It's not like a small stream that, you know, would guarantee mm-hmm. freeze. But, of course, rivers still freeze in the winter. But I wanted to look that up. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really find anything definitive or, like, <laughs> video or, or recent photography of the river uh, in the winter. And Google Earth, it just looks like running water. So okay. whether or mm-hmm. not you would be, you know, that's just a weird addition. It's right. Like, you wouldn't be canoeing around necessarily in in November, uh, because the small tributaries, like, wouldn't be accessible. But okay. hmm. would he have had a canoe? Like, that's the thing. When you're a trapper, it's not like you're just out there for the weekend. You know what I mean? You don't just go out for five days. Like, mm-hmm. you might in certain areas, but in this area, it's like a two, three-week-plus thing, possibly even longer. You know, like, back in the old days, like, fur trappers were out along lines, and then they would have certain posts where they could go to, to, like, either sell trade or get resupplies or whatever. They're out for months. Hmm. Months and months. Mm-hmm. So if he's kind of, like, living the way of the old trappers, During this, yeah, then he very well could have started this, this uh, you know, <laughs> trapping season earlier when he had, accept, like, access to, like, running water, possibly, right? At the running water, it sounds like a tap. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Like hopping in a canoe. But that is that is weird. But then obviously the other description of it sounding very much like it, it had been abandoned for a really long time. The rusty not, rifle. Yeah, not a, yeah, not a hasty exodus. But the dogs are still alive in, in this account. Here. Yeah, so how could the dogs still be alive then? Unless they were, because he says here, nothing but the personal belongings of a family, a couple of deer parkas, fish and deer bones scattered about. So maybe they were surviving off of those. Right. They're mm-hmm. just, they're just like, just barely clinging, eating what's left of the village. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, so he mm-hmm. spent a few more hours in the village, caught some fish in the lake, gave these to the dogs. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, and he, yeah. See, but that just, I, I, I have an explanation potentially that does tie in then to this, uh, if, if people want to get super, really supernatural with the idea of a uh, torn rock, but how we can possibly, uh, mesh together the fact that there was possibly a burning fire still and rusty rifle like that that contradiction here 
Mod- mm-hmm. You know, stuff still recently touched, stuff been left behind. Mm. So, but but I I think we should probably touch on some UFOs first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you're if you're into that. Yeah, let's do it. Because obviously we mentioned that in uh, the beginning and the act in the you know the first rendition of the story we went through and uh, Armand Laurent and his two sons who claimed to have seen a UFO in the area heading in the direction of Anjakuni. So that's definitely bizarre. Like, could that have anything to do with this if we're just assume? Let's assume for a second that the village was indeed abandoned. Mm-hmm. Whether or not the other details are true or not, we can speculate on that after, but it's abandoned. So could this have anything to do with it? Unsolved Mysteries page is where I first uh, caught wind of the UFO uh, angle. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Possibly be dealing with evil spirits of the North. And Tornrark was not familiar to either of us. No. So we had to do some uh, more research. But it's interesting because Joe references the spirit. And, Kate, this is where things get a little more convoluted, too. Oh, even more convoluted, you say. Even more! Because in this book, Ghost Stories of Canada, written by John Robert Colombo, who we've referenced repeatedly throughout this episode, he actually is quoted in that book as saying, so this is an alternate version of that. So basically, this is the quote from LaBelle. Quote, I tried to figure out where those Eskimos had gone. They hadn't moved to a new territory or they would have taken their equipment, especially their guns and their dogs. Then I thought of the Eskimo's evil spirit, Tornrark, who has an ugly man's face and with two long tusks sticking up from each side of the nose. The natives live in fear of Tornrark, and they wear charms to ward him off. I thought about Tornrark, and I had to make an effort to put the picture out of my mind. (laughs) So that's uh, quoted in Columbo's book there from 2000. But yeah, this is a very interesting aspect of the story and so again just to reiterate the convolution there is the idea that was joe aware of this evil spirit upon entering the camp or was it in his alleged investigations and asking other inuit groups about it afterwards Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where the confusion lies but these are some pretty crazy like frightening can be frightening spirits and there are spirits that have actually According to Inuit mythology, they've never been connected to physical bodies. They go by various names. There's a lot of different pronunciations. Torngate, uh, very different spellings here. Tornat, Tornrate. Anyways, I won't get into all of them. Sure. But they're described as a shaman's helping spirit. But their nature depends on the respective shaman. So they can be helpful or they can be evil and monstrous and they are often blamed for bad hunts, broken tools, other sorts of things. So it's almost like an evil sprite in some sense, but then also could be helpful if harnessed in the right ways. Yeah. But that's not where it ends because I pulled up some more information from a source that we've also referenced above in this article too, or in this episode, I should say, anomalyinfo.com. And they included mention of an Inuit man by the name of Saw who shortly after the Anjakuni Lake incident was brought into a hospital nearby a Hudson Bay Railroad for treatment of frozen legs and was allegedly questioned by the police in connection to the Anjakuni Lake mystery. But this man was very tight-lipped about it. He wouldn't really talk too much, but he did mention the name Torn Rock. 
And that was very, like, he just basically, it's almost like one of those things that I'm picturing where it's like, the more you talk about it, the more dangerous it gets. Right. But (laughs) this is interesting. The police tried to get him drunk in order to get him to spill the beans about it. And he refused, (laughs) which is very odd, too. Apparently, he didn't like whiskey. So, yeah, I'm like, really, guys? Great interview tactic. Well, Very I mean, professional. Yeah, well, hey. But you do what you got to do, I guess, back I, in the day. I suppose so. But, I mean, it's like a very, it's a it's a Voldemort situation here. The, mm-hmm. He who shall not be named. You just don't really Definitely. talk about it? Because you want to like, well, and stir the boat? 100%. Stir the pot, I should say. There's rock the boat, <laughs> stir the pot, 100%. This, you know, obviously, it's obviously, complete, it's so hard to quantify when we always end up with these possible explanations that are so paranormal or mythological oriented that it's it's just really hard other than reaching back into the past and saying that there's evidence of inuit obviously firmly believing in the existence of these entities Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this like has been played on in recent things that we've really enjoyed like the terror and the Mm -hmm. the you know the fiction version of what could have happened to the franklin expedition because this is a huge part of the culture of the indigenous peoples of the north. And when you're in such a, like an environment that's so harsh and so intense, like I, I kind of buy into it a bit. Mm-hmm. I believe in the indigenous shamans to achieve some level of transcendence. So could this have been some sort of like a revenge thing going on or just a situation where he loses control, whoever is controlling mm. this entity, this spirit? Mm. You know, the Idrak is another... Um, you know, spirit of the North that's evil that I think we've mentioned in past episodes, and there's dozens and dozens of them. I believe that one steals children from villages. Oh, okay. So this, the Tornrark, kind of just does it all. That's what yeah, it seems like. Well, a little bit of everything, yeah. Can be helpful, can be well, harmful. Okay, we can we can obviously come back to speculate on that later. It's, it's again, it's hard, hard for us to, like, find any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. But obviously, LaBelle believed in it, if mm-hmm. we were to buy into some of these quotes. Yeah. It's all his words getting minced together, though. It's like one quote, okay, was that the real quote? And then we have another one. Was that the real quote? The Kelleher Report, the original. Right? Which, which, which is it and I what know. is it? So confusing. So many different things going on here. And then we're <laughs> going to get into UFOs. <laughs> just, just, to, just to add that layer onto it. But we kind of have to because of the mention from Armand Laurent and his two sons, mm-hmm. allegedly. This description of a UFO, however more or less from what we can find out and like this is what most articles mention too that this is comes from the 1983 publication uh, by nigel blundell and roger Bohr, world's greatest ufo mysteries book so where they pulled the original source from is difficult to say and whether or not sergeant nelson with some sort of an earlier investigation would have had mm-hmm. any sort of information about previous Mounties. Was he one of the Mounties Was he one of the Mounties? Yeah, that was staying with them. And then just like, and again, it's 1930s. This is pre-Kenneth Arnold, right? This is pre-1950s, like, UFO movies being, like, a big thing. You know, you're not going to make a big, you're not going to, like, even report that if you're the RCMP. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you're a yellow journalist, for sure. If you're Mm -hmm. an RCMP and someone tells you they saw a UFO, you're going to laugh about it and talk about your buddies to talk talk mm-hmm. to your buddies at the bar exactly like, that's it yeah so what are we left with here then what we have to potentially corroborate this ufo is the two contradicting meals in my opinion we've mm. got potentially a burning fire that's still going even though the rest of the village is abandoned for possibly months because the other meal is left moldy mm-hmm. and to me there's like two things that like popped into my head when i was trying to like 
figure this out in my head. Also, like the dogs being starved to death, is that possibly an you know evidence they're left behind, kind of like mutilated cattle, like dead animals, humans are gone. I don't know. But the fact that there could be a one meal that's fresh or like recently burnt and another that's moldy makes me think that maybe someone was returned and didn't know what to do with themselves. You know what I mean? It's either mm-hmm. like, it's almost like an infrasound type okay. thing, maybe a diet loft path. But if we're trying to lean on hmm. towards the UFO angle, yeah. it's almost like someone was left behind after whatever event occurred where maybe they were exposed to radiation or they're just affected severely, but they're still chilling in Andrew village and they had their pot of stew on the fire. Meanwhile, everyone else had been gone. That's interesting. That's months. an interesting angle. I might have something to actually help corroborate that uh, wild uh, speculation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, just in a second, though. But, like, my thoughts on the whole burning fire, because like it was described, so there was a smoldering fire with smoke rising from it and a pot with burnt stew in it. Right. And then a moldy meal. So food generally takes, what, like five-ish days in 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 conditions like, you know, like household temperature, that type of thing, depending on what you're eating. So it can go moldy within like, you know, a couple weeks, like max, you'd imagine. Right. But the burning fire, like, yeah, the smoldering embers, like, was that, was the, the stove, or sorry, the stove, the pot on top of the fire, like, was that just, like, burning down very, 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 very slowly? Because, obviously, if you have no intending of fire, then it would, the, the heat would die off quite quickly. In, imagine? like, how long, though? Like Unless really it was fast. in a very established fire pit where you could just maintain it underneath the surface so it's kind of protected from the elements, I maybe? Get, but how long is that going to burn for? I don't know. Could get whipped up by winds, too. A day? Too. Like, a day, maybe? I know, right? That's just, it. I have no precedent or for that. Or was someone still there when he came up came up to the village and was hiding because they were afraid yeah for whatever reason yeah but going back to your interesting explanation there with the idea that maybe they were spirited away in a ufo and then maybe one of them was returned there was some information i pulled up again from anomalyinfo.com and in their research they actually said that there was a report of a 10 year old inuit boy that was allegedly not part of any of the local tribes and had wandered in a few months earlier and had been adopted by a group that was settled approximately 150 kilometers north of Anjakuni Lake. Interesting. Neither the boy nor the group he was living with at the time were talking about this event beyond that, though. So his true origins remain a mystery to this day. Could this boy be the one sole survivor that you're talking about? And he managed to make it like on life and limb 150 miles up north after he was dropped back or why would you go north though well maybe he knew there was some some someone there maybe maybe he just or maybe yeah just you're totally out of it and it's Mm -hmm. like a classic like the kid in the second indiana jones movie that like stumbles out of the temple of doom and just finds his way back to the village somehow yeah exactly so that's another added element of (laughs) intrigue to this but yeah, exactly. Like, so are we dealing with, let's go back into like the details of this because okay. you did some investigation. You couldn't really find any other corroborated sightings though. Okay, well right? there's two things I wanted to, to to mention here to try to corroborate this. There's the obvious who uh, was Armand Laurent and mm. his two and his two sons. Okay. There are a lot of individuals with the name, uh, with Armand the first Laurent. and last name and the various different combinations. We didn't actually get the uh, first names of the sons. So yeah. it's really hard to dig up. There is a, a bunch of guys in the 1930s that would have potentially matched the age in Quebec, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan with that name hmm. that appear, by all accounts, to have been either 
fishermen, hunters, or various different, like, outdoorsman-type careers. Like, this is a cursory glance from myself. So can we prove that that the RCMP stopped and actually talked to a real Armand Laurent? Not, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Mm-hmm. But there, it was a good name to choose if, this, if it was a made-up name, because... It definitely would have made sense in that area. So mm. I tried to find it. I couldn't I couldn't corroborate that definitively. It's like Mike Smith in French. It's like Mike, it, <laughs> one of them, right? Like Bouchard, like your last name. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to really try to pin down was UFO sightings. Was there any others in the 30s, 40s, 50s in Nunavut? Hmm. Really hard to pin down. Or Northwest Territories generally. Or Northwest Territories. Really, really tough. Uh, it is super tough. The official in can- that time frame. Exactly, mm-hmm. in the time frame. The official Canadian UFO database that catalogs sightings, uh, the only one from Nunavut that I could find, very, very recent, 2018, uh, a pilot encounter with a uh, UFO over over Nunavut. Roughly, I think it was about 275 kilometers west of Anjakuni Lake. So not over the lake exactly, and obviously way in the future but yeah so that was 2018 eh? Hmm. but i mean it's one of those things where it's like i mean there's not a lot of population so obviously there's not going to be a ton of ufo sightings the one thing i could say that might help with this is i did come across a book literally just before we sat down to record this and i can't remember who was written by but it was compiled from an old now defunct website that was the preeminent source of ufo data of the north so specific to the arctic region okay and in this book that i just bought for 99 cents on kindle so i'm gonna go read that tonight (laughs) only a a short 117 pages long so it should be a quick read but yeah so they basically go through a lot of sightings and a lot of them are concentrated in the 90s there was a whole state gotcha. from like 1989 up until like the mid 90s, I think. And we're probably actually going to mention that in collaboration with our Nazi Bell episode because I, I think there's there's, there's lines that trace back to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty cool though. But yeah, other than that, I couldn't really find anything myself. So. Okay. Interesting. So yeah. as far as the UFO angle goes, because I mean, it's, it's tough to say, to just say that. A, a small fishing village would be just outright abducted and taken away. But I mean, I guess that yeah. goes for any type of abduction, right? I mean, like why take anyone? I mean, we're, we would ask that in any situation or, you know, cattle mutilation situations associated with UFO sightings mm. or any of these types of things. So what about the disinterred graves aspect too? Could that, we lump that into you, the... You took, totally took the words right out of my mouth. Like, could, okay. <laughs> no, 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 that's totally cool. Could that have something to do with it? Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Because that remains a complete enigma in this whole mess of... Right. It, it seems like obviously des- like desecrating a grave is going to be like bad juju for anyone. Right. But I mean, was it an attempt why to would... eat the remains? Like see, how old this, are these this remains? Is an, see, this is an extraterrestrial now, though. Like this no. is more paranormal. This is more like torn rark. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, ex- the, yeah, the disinterred graves is almost more like a, it's a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a, you know, it's trying to offend them or it's trying to, you know, scare them in the afterlife too right like it's tormenting the the living in the village and then the graves are also mm. disinterred perhaps is i oh, guess maybe sort okay. of the angle back to the ufos though it's more most people will say that the uf angle ufo angle was added in the 80s the ufo angle the ufo angle <laughs> ufo <laughs> but then it gets weird because there's actually some older mentions of possible ufo sightings oh. in Nunavut. And a corroboration of one of the RCMP officers 
on the investigation. Mm -hmm. And we haven't actually said this, but just for everyone listening, a lot of our American listeners who, whatever, we haven't mentioned RCMP a ton, Royal Canadian Mounted Police is what that stands for. Right. I should probably just say that. And before that, it was the Northwest Mounted Police. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is where it gets extra weird, though, because in an April 1977 edition of Fate magazine, which has come up already in this episode, the guy who allegedly got the idea, Kelleher, from a fate issue. Is that what it was? Yeah, I think it would have been an earlier edition, Or Frank though. Edwards got Frank it. Frank Edwards, yeah. Right. Yeah, because he published in 1950. And, you know, he was a science fiction writer, so that makes sense. Yeah. But in a 77 edition of Fate, there was a reader who wrote in to dispute uh, a conclusion about the Anjikuni Lake mystery, which basically stated that it was, uh, it was made up. Mm-hmm. This reader was pretty ticked off about this. It was none other than Betty Hill. Ooh. Of Betty and Barney Hills, the most famous or one of the most famous Ooh, abduction cases in history. And at the time of writing, she, you know, this had already, her story had already come out. So she was, she was well known as the self-described abductee. And she was the subject of the, you know, the famous 1966 book about their whole mm. experience, the lost hours aboard a flying saucer, where she claimed to have been taken away with her husband. But in her letter, she writes in claiming that she was once on a vacation with her husband in the Bay of Fundy. And on this trip, they met a man named Captain Larson, who they conversed with for quite a while. And he told them that he was a Mountie and had spent nine years in the North, specifically that he had spent nine years investigating the mystery of the vanishing village at Anjikuni Lake. And... In his opinion, as Betty wrote, the villagers had likely been abducted by mm. UFO. Wow. Now, that's pretty bizarre. So... We have Betty Hill chiming in on the Anjikuni Lake mystery. Yeah, and that's another one we really got to cover on the show. And, I yeah. We won't even get into the specifics of her exact abduction with her husband, but... Okay, let me just say, RCMP, where you at? If any of this is true, we have now another Mountie coming out of the woodwork who allegedly spent nine years of his life, whether or not he was professionally or personally investigating this mystery. One Captain Larson. I want to know who this guy is. Yeah. So he was he the, he was a captain, hey? Was he the captain of the ferry they were riding on in the Bay of Fundy? No, you can be like a police captain. (laughs) Oh, okay, a captain. Okay, not in that. I think, unless he had changed careers and he, you know. Decided to who knows but to, to drive a, f- a ferry. That is very interesting, captain. and that's a skeptoid reference. So I, I'm not going to discount that. Really, I think they were. So Brian Dunning is one of the yeah. Uh, He's one of the main writers. Done yeah. a lot of research on this specific story. Mm-hmm. I think he was just an interest piece mention, not uh, it, you know. Captain Larson. Yeah, because I mean, well, that just this story of Betty Hill in general. This did happen, but I mean, of course, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, uh, Miss, yeah. Mrs. Betty Hill. Mm-hmm. But allegedly, to go along with this as a potential corroboration and definitely adding another layer of bizarre to the UFO angle of the story, mm-hmm. there was a report that surfaced from Manitoba in the 1960s, allegedly reviewing this case that stated that officers on the scene of Anjakuni, when investigating, reported, quote, odd bluish lights that were pulsating on the horizon above the village. And they watched it for several mm. minutes until it disappeared, afterwards concluding that it resembled nothing of the aurora borealis. So it was not, not the natural lights. phenomena. That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, it's just the northern lights. But no, if they're if they're up there, they know what that is. And I would imagine they'd be able to tell the difference. Hopefully. Whether or not that's true or so not. So we have more bizarre. officers. Like, bizarre. This is RCMP at scene. <laughs> 
is the quote here. <laughs> right. So, okay, that's interesting. So maybe that's why the RCMP in modern times is so tight-lipped about this, is because there were a lot of odd connections to the reports and to this incident in particular that they just don't really want to uh, not verify, but they don't want to further or be involved with as a legit policing organization. So many different (laughs) angles to it. It's potentially, yeah, paranormal or UFO angle they don't want to be associated with. The early description of, quote, uh, the RCMP like reached the village within hours. Mm. Probably unlikely. It's yeah, did pretty they get remote. A yeah, no. super remote to get there. <laughs> also, why would they put in so much effort to go investigate uh, missing Indigenous peoples in the 1930s? There may have been some soft-hearted souls in the RCMP, but I'm just saying it's pretty unlikely that anyone on that staff would have cared at all. Well, you know what I could imagine them all caring about, and this is if they were living in rural conditions themselves, is if you heard there was an abandoned settlement that just people left hastily. Free stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I'd go loot it. (laughs) That would be my first thought. Yeah, like especially trappers in the area, you think, right? That's where we need to kind of fully circle back here, where it could be something much more mundane that happened to these people, where they could have been victims of human malice. There could have been the true crime element, like you mentioned right off the top. One thing that we could throw into the pile of theories here is the idea that what happened to these people, their disappearance could have been a result of some desperate people in this depression era. And yeah. the idea that the Arctic is already, a, you know, very scarcely, there's not a lot of populations. So or yeah. not, a lot of popula- not a lot of resources to support populations is kind of what I meant to say there. Well, and also population. So if you're out there and you need help, there's not a lot of people to help you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there could have been perhaps another indigenous group, perhaps uh, white settlers. Like we mentioned off the top of the bat, the reason for the severe decline of Inuit and just in general Aboriginal peoples in Canada is because of conflict with European settlers. So that's a really, you know, that's a pretty mainstream angle yeah, we could take no, with for it. Sure. Perhaps if you want to throw in a little bit of conspiracy element here, police could have been involved or being involved in covering it up, right? And that's why there's not a lot to be said. And it's hard to dig up that internal report that was done by Sergeant Nelson and allegedly released to the public. But, you know, people have dug those up. So there is supposedly more evidence to support that there was an investigation. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, what do you what do you make of that? Do you think there could be? I think if there was in an actual investigation and they turned up exactly what you just described, it would probably have just been reported as, yeah, as, 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 as nothing happened because what are they supposed to do about it? You know, and they That's don't want to, you know, but what do you, is there anything really in those stories to support a true crime angle? Because there's no evidence of murder People. occurring. Yeah. Right. There's no bodies left anywhere right. and everything seems to be mostly in order. Yeah. And it's not so, as if like Inuit people were necessarily, uh, you know, exactly. And like the disinterred graves, mm-hmm. which is a later addition by most accounts. But if it wasn't and that that was true and that did actually happen, mm-hmm. grave robbing doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because really I don't know. think in, in, Inuit were, were, it's not like they had like gold and stuff. They weren't like, they were, mm. they were burying like items of significance probably, but not anything a grave robber hmm. would be interested in. Yeah. So it does, hmm. yeah, the, the true crime angle is tough. It's tough. Also, just to throw another thought into the mix, is the idea if that camp or settlement had been abandoned for as long as the RCMP claimed in their that initial statement of like, what was it, two months-ish? Right. Based off of the evidence of the berries. 
if that's the case, like, you know, that's a long time for it to just sit and no one come across it besides Joe LaBelle wandering through. Right. Like, you know, obviously we're talking super remote, but one of the main practices, and we came across this when we covered the Franklin expedition, yeah. was the idea that if other Inuit came across a settlement that had been abandoned or whatever, they would have just taken what they needed and moved on. And remember when we were doing the investigation into the Franklin expedition and we saw reports of Inuit that had belongings from the Erebus and the Terror, right. that they thought this was evidence that, you know, the Inuit had, you know, uh, <laughs> killed all the all the explorers. But that's not really the case. No. Like, they just take no. what they need because it's there. Of because of the exact reason we mentioned, scarcity. So, 100%. I don't actually, know. Fun, funny uh, transition there, actually, and I feel like we have to mention this because we've brought up the Franklin Expedition a couple of times. Mm -hmm. There's a loose connection to the Franklin Expedition mm -hmm. and Anjakuti Lake, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Uh, in the 40s, there was a man by the name of Farley Mowat who was a Canadian explorer. And a prolific writer, too. And a writer, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, exploring in the area of Anjakuni, and at, you know, at, at, at the time, a part of the Northwest Territories, and he found a cairn, uh, something we'd mentioned mm. a lot in the Franklin ex uh, Expedition episode, which was basically like the various different forms of construction, depending on the culture, to mark or leave messages, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't uh, done in a fashion used by the Inuit of the area that Moet was familiar with. And inside were weird, uh, flattened, like, hardwood with these dovetailed corners to it. Uh, not, no, no writing on it. But he speculated that this was a monument that was possibly left by Francis Crozier. Wow. Who was the only, you know, well, not the only, but, like, no one ever found his body. No. Uh, and uh, there was speculation that he may have assimilated with the, the Inuit. Indigenous, yeah. And the indigenous peoples of the north. Mm. And for a cairn with markings from... Captain Crozier to be all the way that far south of like King William Island where they we knew that they were in that expedition mm -hmm. it's hundreds of kilometers away mm -hmm. but could be possible I mean mm -hmm. there's these river systems leading into it yeah but it just adds another sort of element of strangeness mm -hmm. to the area it itself does that does that maybe potentially tie into torn rark or some sort of a weird energy mm. in the area because why would there be this cairn left with messages with nothing on it especially in an area where things would be you know better preserved than you, you know something left in like the jungle or something oh, like that, unless right? they may have gotten wet and then the paper got bleached because yeah of it or it's, something it's, pos and, it's, it's possible mm -hmm. but i thought that i had that's to an interesting that mention that's an interesting <laughs> farley mow it that's that brought me back to my um grade four classroom because i read owls in the family by farley mow it <laughs> oh, right. okay. he's written a lot of good books though and a lot of them have to do with nature and the canadian wildlife he was out there yeah. exploring he was out there mm -hmm. exploring so there's a lot of bizarre potential elements that could have led to the demise or vanishing of mm -hmm. this village if it even happened at all <laughs> yeah and i think that obviously the reference that you pulled up where it was the earliest transcription of the information that labelle relayed where it was like you know a group of 25 yeah you know six six tents mm -hmm. um couple you, of dogs couple of dogs mm -hmm. um you know and then a later story of maybe one boy who survives or something somehow you know, mm -hmm. That didn't come from LaBelle. No, that didn't come yeah. from LaBelle. But if that happened, it's like, okay, group of 25 people. Th that Those make sense. Like, that's mm -hmm. a, that makes sense for a nomadic group of, like, three or four families. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. That that could that could have yeah, been a real tents, thing. Yeah, six tents, six little subunits within the group. Everything there. else gets added onto it later. It sounds all fantastical and crazy. 
when in actuality something really terrible and mysterious could have happened and it didn't really get necessarily the attention it needed. What's the old adage here where it's like, I'm almost thinking this could be a case of just severe disinformation and perhaps cover up because, you know, disinformation goes a long way when you have a little bit of truth mixed into it. And perhaps this is some sort of like cover up to a certain degree of like things that we want to seem so outrageous that it could never have happened. Ergo, we'll just not even go there kind of thing. But the the official statement, modern day RCMP just makes me have this spidey sense. Yeah. It's just a tingle that comes up and I don't know. That's something real I know there's a lot of darkness in that side of history in Canada. So it's possible. It's Mm -hmm. possible. The question is why it's so remote and there's nothing out there, presumably that you would Mm. need to remove people from for any reason or like get them to hush up about something or whatever. But you could say the same for like the dial off pass or something, right? Even though it's like, Oh, it was close to a military installation. Like Mm -hmm. there's so many different things. I guess we could wildly speculate. Totally. What if it was a personal vendetta? One person had against another personal you know? vendetta, and then that could even go into the angle of like the paranormal with Torrenrock, like who someone knows? who just yeah, sabotage, like a shaman sabotages a... the village, yeah, or the the whole group for whatever reason, right? There's so many angles. <laughs> I will say, coming down into our con- the final thoughts here and conclusions, that ultimately I do believe that Joe LaBelle was indeed a real person, like we've kind of gone through here. Whether or not he was just trying to spin a yarn is weird because. If you're a trapper that's actually there all the time in the area, why are you only turning up one time in the RCMP search of you as just registering that one single time? And then you're associated with this paranormal story. Mm-hmm. It's almost like has a feeling to me, and this is going to sound totally cra- crazy, but like that LaBelle almost has like this vibe to me that he's almost like a weird, I don't know, like injured cold informant type of vibe or something. It's like, why are you even there at all? It's like, it's, it's if if it's true, if it was literally mm. like first time ever out there yet, I'm saying I'm there all the time. It just is odd. Mm. It's got, Well, you could go the opposite way too. Instead of focusing on LaBelle, you could focus on Kelleher and his need to perpetuate his career and come up with stories that are slightly believable, but so phenomenal that they will sell papers. So, you know, but there's... Then why, but then why would the RCMP not just say that? Why wouldn't they just say Kelleher's the one making this up? Why? Because it's just that half-assed yeah, of an guess. investigation. It's like, ah, yeah, let's just stop at the 1950s. That's where it was happy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's bullshit Because that's the, the even 50s. more yeah, outrageous version, right? It's not even a newspaper. It's a science fiction book. Yeah, you just sound so. like an idiot when you say that that's the only source. Yeah, well. Right? And you're the... They're just hoping no one's going to dig deeper. And you're the police department. <laughs> they're, they're just hoping no one's going to dig further than that. Like, you'd think someone would update it, at least, at the very least now. Well, we should send them the transcript of this episode, and maybe we'll they have, will. We'll have to. <laughs> we'll have to. No one else's. <laughs> I, I'm not buying the UFO angle. Nah. Yeah. That's a I, tough one. That's a tough one, even tough though sell, yeah. perhaps someone did see the bullet of a UFO, a bizarre craft. Mm. I just don't think... I just don't think that adds up. Mm-hmm. There's other sources that just toss in the Wendigo and other, like, spirits that are associated with, like, indigenous mm-hmm. lore. The Wendigo may or may not be associated with peoples that have passed through this region, but it's a spirit that attaches to individual people mm-hmm. and causes them to go insane and cannibalize things and what have you. They don't just sort of tear through a village and demolish it in one fell swoop. Unless it was one of the villagers themselves that was... Unless it was one of the villagers themselves, And that's why the graves were dug up and all that kind of stuff, but... Ooh. You know what I mean? I could definitely see the Wendigo being one of those ones where it's plausible to throw in. Any any fans here uh, of the movie uh, uh, 30 Days of Night 
might uh, be in, be thinking of that. Uh, was it Thirty Days of Night, or was that other one that we saw that was the, like... the one with the vampires? I'm thinking of yeah. Thirty oh, Days of Night, okay. where, where they're in the Arctic and it's dark for thirty days, and the vampires show up <laughs> and start what, preying there, on the community. Wasn't there another one we watched where it was like a couple of guys up in the northern area, and they end up becoming cannibals? Oh and yeah, stuff. we reviewed that on the show. Yeah, that what was, was it called? Uh, again? No, they didn't end up becoming cannibals. They just went insane and started yes. killing each other yeah. because of some weird like substance that was on the ancient ruins that they discovered buried in the snow. That was, was a Canadian that? a Canadian film. It and, was. Oh my gosh. Uh, Oh. Mm, I'm totally blanking. <laughs> Everyone out there listening is probably <laughs> screaming it at us. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it has that kind of a vibe to it, right? Where it's like disinterred graves. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe this was a vampire village. Maybe they were not actually humans. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, I think All that's right, time. We're, we're, yeah. I think that's time. So yeah, no, it's, this was a fun one. So other than it being kind of disturbing and pretty dark, it's definitely a, like I said off the top, it's a, it's one of the greatest mysteries in Canadian lore, and we want to know what you guys think about this bizarre case of Anjakuni Lake. So if you don't want to comment on social media or whatever, hit us up by email, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Visit us at intotheportal.com uh, for all things ITP. And I guess we should probably mention that Amber has revamped our, our Into the Portal it's store. It's in the process. It's definitely not fully there. But... Yeah, but you can get on there and shop for a jump squatch piece. Am I right? I think you can. Sweet. So yeah, no, we're, we're revamping the Into the Portal shop. We're really excited about it because we haven't necessarily focused on that, but it's all original artwork and it's just such a great way for you guys to like support us so we can keep things going. And obviously like you get really high quality, sweet, original pieces in return. So yeah, so uh, go check it out, intotheportal.com. The shop is going to keep getting better and better. Oh yeah. Um, did you have any sort of final things you wanted to, to finish off here before we, before we leave? Before we um, head out? No, that's a pretty good conclusion, I think. Hey, like, up. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, definitely. Like I'm, you know, we did a pretty thorough job of trying to gather up all the sources we could find we in relation to this episode. If we missed any big ones that you guys are like, man, why did they bring this up? Just let us know because we'd love to hear it and we can just post it on our Facebook group or whatever and yeah. get the I, conversation going I out will, there. I will say that I'm, I, I believe that there's ounces of truth to this. I do think that there was a village on Anjakuni. Everything else is up for speculation. So mm-hmm. can't wait to hear everyone's uh, speculation. So yeah, at Into the Portal Podcast on Instagram, at Into the Portal 1 on Twitter, at Into the Portal on TikTok. I'm not TikTok. crazy active on there yet, but we do have some videos up and Here's I'm trying to trying to get uh, better on there. And then of course, uh, patreon.com slash Into the Portal, uh, where you guys can help support the show and get a whole bunch of sweet stuff in return. New episodes are coming. So just massive thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and especially our producers, uh, Adam Kellums, Nightwing, Kitsune, and of course, Jackson Greenberg. We couldn't do this without Greenberg. you. Uh, so yeah, thank you guys so, so much. Uh, check out betterhelp.com if you think it's something that can help you. The link is below. Use uh, promo code PORTAL to get 10% off your first month. And I think that about does it. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with us uh, this week. And until next time, on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.